Okay, so uh, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Crossroads. If you're new, I hope you can find a place to pray today uh, with the family of God. My name is Dan Mike, and I'd like to invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. As a community, we have been studying the Gospel of Mark uh, since January. Some of the things I'd like to just point out, some bigger themes to help your comprehension of our study uh, today, especially if you haven't been following along closely. Mark is 16 chapters unpacking the very first line of the book. It's one of those books that start off with one of those lines that just blow you away. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, you can divide these 16 chapters into two parts pretty easily. Chapters 1 through 8 is unpacking who Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is. And you start to see these stories. This is who he is. Somebody who is uh, bringing people who are on the outside in. Somebody who is healing people, bringing hope to those who are in despairs, uh, despair. Somebody who's bringing the king, his kingdom to fruition in this community, we see stories of who he is in the first eight chapters. In the second eight chapters, we like to say this is, this is how. It's the chapters of how you start to see this, this, the, the eye of the reader is led to Calvary. One of the, one of the ways you could sort of see... Um, the, a literary feature in the end of Mark here is, is it mimics what's referred to as a Roman triumph, a declaration or a heralding of the victory of one of their Caesars and one of their emperors. And how this would work is your eye is drawn towards the throne. But in Mark, that, <laughs> that pattern is still true. But the eye is not drawn to the, to the Roman throne. It's drawn to a different throne where, where our king sits and he is wearing a different crown. And so we start to see this action-packed uh, book unfolds some of this stuff uh, throughout the last three or four months. The section that we're in right now in chapter 6, kind of a long chapter, and it's situated in this big middle section here uh, that I like to point at a bracket of chapter 4 to chapter 8. And I say that because as you're reading, sometimes you can see just specific brackets that are placed um, in some of these ancient writings like this. And this bracket uh, starts in the parable of the sower where we see a quote from the book of Isaiah. Though they will see, they will not perceive. Though they will hear, they will not understand. And that's also at the end of chapter 8, right where that guy who was blind, he couldn't really see anything but trees, you know. Uh, and Jesus says, do, are you seeing, and you do not, to his disciples, are you seeing, but you still don't understand? And so what that section is, there's an underpinning theme here in this section of all these interactions that Jesus has with people who should see, but don't see. And that contrast is true, true as well. People who shouldn't, but do. And so what that starts to teach us is it starts to like really become a compelling critique of people who think they know. Maybe you don't. Or people who think they see and maybe you don't. There's things that we can put into our minds and into our hearts that actually dull our ability to see what God is doing in this world that dull our ability to understand the kingdom of heaven and how it's advancing in this world. And so uh, we pay close attention 
to these stories in this section and evaluate ourselves. Where am I at? Am I, am I missing it? I'm always keeping a close eye, just personally as I'm studying this uh, along with all of you, in how does the parable of the sower and the soil start to bleed into the future story or the stories following it? Is there a picture of certain soil that we're seeing here? And I say that because today I, I keep in my mind coming back to potentially this, the thorny soil being portrayed in some of the story that we're going to read today. All this is relevant to um, what I'm going to read to you in Mark chapter 6. And I'd like to start reading it at verse 12. And if you're able to stand, please stand with me for the reading. Mark chapter 6 and verse 12. Then the disciples went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why, that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he's Elijah. And still others claimed he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. Here's the story. For Herod himself had given the orders to have John arrested. He had him bound and put into prison. He did this because Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. It's an interesting sentence. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John, protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportunity came. On his birthday, Herod threw a birthday party for himself. Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. So the king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want, I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath. Whatever you want, I will give to you up to half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed because of his oath, but because of his oath and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went and beheaded John in prison, brought back his head on a platter and presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. Upon hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Verse 30. Then the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Amen. The very words of God. Let's just take a moment and pray.
Father in heaven, we live in a messed up world. And stories like this expose some of that, the evil that's going on in this world and the hatred for people who want to speak your truth and hatred for people who just want to see just want to see your will brought into others' lives and help us to figure out how to do that well. Help us to learn how to put our trust in you And in your name, I pray, amen. Well, I hope you're hungry this morning because Mark has another sandwich prepared for us. The Markin sandwich, the literary motif, that's kind of slang. The scholarly word for this is in, in intercalation. It's kind of hard to say, so we just say Markin sandwich instead. What it is, is it's an interjection of a story into another story that seems like it's not related. But the author did it on purpose to illustrate a point. So as you can see from the reading, the sandwich the, that Jesus sent out his disciples, and then, and then Mark places the story of John, Herod, and Herodias, and then immediately following that, the disciples return from their ministry. <laughs> You, you would think as a reader, we, we want to see what, what some stories of, of the disciples going out and like doing this ministry. Who are they talking to and how did it go for them, you know? But this is what John put in. It's not a question, or Mark, it's not a question of if, it's why. So I'd like to just put before you today a theme for you to pray about and think about. And it's a theme of trust. Who or what do you trust in? Trust is a fundamental reality of being a follower of Jesus. What do you trust in? Is it a method of how we live our lives that will produce a certain lifestyle? Is it a, a, a denomination or a theological structure that will produce uh, something in the future for you that you think? It, it, what do we trust in, actually? Like, when you look at your time and how it's spent, like, what would it tell you that you're trusting in and, and, and valuing above all other things? Um, trust is a very important topic. And I think it will be one of the make or break topics for our generation and how Christianity moves in this world. What I see often is a lot of people who have believe in Jesus but maybe don't trust him. And remember a few weeks ago, I kind of brought up a question that I've been trying to answer even in my own thinking of what is the difference between a believer and a disciple? And how, how did that happen over history? When, when Christianity started, being a follower of Jesus is just a follower of Jesus. But at some point, it's split and you could be a believer. But if you really wanted to, you could be a disciple too. You know, if you're an extra credit Christian, you could be a disciple. Um, and I think what I've come to conclude is that in places where there is great opportunity, great advantage, or power, those are the places where we start to see the separation between being a follower and being a believer. You have to protect your lifestyle, of course. So, you know, you won't see this distinction in Iran right now. 
There is no difference. Being a follower is a follower. Being a believer is a follower. It's costly. It's something that you, you have to protect and will work its way out in your lifestyle or else it's just not there. And so in this is how this works. When we have choices to trust other things and we start to trust those other things, we'll start to see our testimonies will start to become more dull. And the people who are around us in our families and the children that are around us who are watching us will not know. What does it really mean to believe in Jesus? If you're trusting in everything else that the world trusts in, you just have some more rules on top of it. Why, why would I do that? This is a very important topic for us to figure out. Am I going to trust Jesus or not? Or am I going to trust everything that everybody else in the world trusts? For the sake of the people who are around you, let's answer that question. Some trust in chariots. Some trust in horses. But we choose to trust in the name of the Lord Most High. Will there be a time where we say, you know what, there's an opportunity that I have to just go with the way the world says to go, but because of my belief in Jesus and to live consistently with him, I'm going to have to lay that down because I trust him. Before I get too far ahead of myself, I'd just like to put the theme out there. I think this will be very valuable. Um, I did bring a quote to share from you from Howard Thurman. Um, an influence of MLK and pastor of the first church in America to have staff both black and white, a multiracial staff. So um, it's from his book, Jesus and the Disinherited. The conventional Christian word is muffled, confused, and vague. Too often the price exacted by society for security and respectability is that the Christian movement in its formal expression must be on the side of the strong against the weak. And what he's getting at here is the temptation for Christians to, to start to accumulate for themselves power. And the trick inside of that to, 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 stop, to start trusting that instead of trusting in Jesus. You start to see the weak be disenfranchised. The people who don't have that power or other people in this world become a threat to whatever we're trying to conserve or to have. But we do not serve a God of limited resources. And once you start to parse that out in your thinking, in your lifestyle, it really is a confronting reality. We don't serve a God who has a limited amount of joy and peace and life to give this world. And so there really isn't anybody that we have to look at as threatening. As we trust in him, we are then able to share and to welcome and then to... And to pursue people who, like, like he was talking about, the disinherited. Um, and so, like to be thinking today about trust. And I think that because as I start to look at the thread that brings this Mark and Sandwich together, um, it's really the theme of trust. It's not something that you grow out of, graduate from. Therefore, I don't have to trust anymore. <laughs> you know, I've, I did that early on and now I don't have to. Even though that's a, a heavy temptation in our world to do. It's something that's going to be a fundamental piece of your Christian faith 
for the entire time. As you can see here, this is the beginning of the disciples' journey, and, and Mark places in the story of a faithful follower at the end of his journey, still trusting. It's something that uh, you, you start to see is fundamental even in the way that Jesus sent out the disciples here. Uh, we read it last week. He sent them out without a walking staff, without a bag of money or extra clothes or even making provisions of where he was going to stay. That's just screaming at us, trust me. As Rod referenced, this was a reference in a lot of ways to the children of Israel when they were in the desert, uh, their time of wandering in the desert, which is like one of the most direct stories of trusting God in the Bible, right? Cloud by day, fire by night, manna from heaven, we're trusting you. But even more than that, as Jesus says to them, I want to be close to you, as close as your essential needs are. That's not separate from me. I want you to trust me in, in your essential needs department. What I can't help but noticing is that the essential needs exist in a place of what we call home. When you go away from home, you, you have to make provisions for your essential needs. Not at home, that's just where they all live. And what if trusting Jesus from the very beginning is supposed to be associated with um, all the things that you need at home. Like if your journey begins with steps of trusting Jesus, what if you do that and more and more you start to feel like his empowering presence in my life as I trust him makes me feel like I'm at home even if I'm not at home. When we are sent out in the kingdom, and I can't prove this to you, but I just know, I, I have felt this, and I know so many people who have felt this. When we're sent out to an unknown place in this world in, because of Jesus and for his kingdom, there's something that happens where you are able to feel like, I don't know why, but I belong here. I don't know how this works, but it works. And these, this essential reality, I mean, part, part of this is probably why we have New Testament letters written to people who are reckoning themselves as, as strangers, aliens, and exiles in this world. Yet we're here, and we're able to be fully here. And, and, and that is all part of the journey of trusting Jesus. He sends them out, and he says, I want your essential needs uh, I want to provide for your essential needs. This isn't the way that this always works. As you can see by placing John in here, like there are, there's a very different experience that you have when you trust Jesus. But at least at the very beginning, one of the first things Jesus wants us to know is this: your steps are going to be ones, steps of trust. It's not something that you have and then it just doesn't go away. It's something you have to work on. I noticed... I don't know if any of you noticed this in verse 30 when they come back. The line says they, they returned and they told Jesus all that they had done. Does that raise any flags for anybody else? It just, for me, just raises a little bit of a flag, maybe like a half flag. Okay, like when Paul and Barnabas return from their missionary trip, they don't say that. They go to Jerusalem and they say... Look at what God has been doing among the Gentiles. I just think there's a big difference between those two lines. And I think 
it's to me indicative of somebody of the temptation to start to trust in your own ability. Uh, look what we have done. Look, they reported all that they had done. And, you know, if you're on the fence right now, just kind of wander your attention towards the next story, right, which is the feeding of the 5,000. What does he say to them? Hey, guys, there's a bunch of people who are hungry. Feed them. Now, you know, the disciples are like, what are you talking about? We, did, we were kind of hungry too. We're hoping you, you'd help us figure this out. And he's like, it, it just kind of sounds like he's saying, if you guys are the ones who've been doing all the ministry, give them something to eat. And not that he's being passive aggressive, but it's just a way, I think, to see what are you relying on. Just make sure this is something we keep coming back to. I am relying on Jesus and I am trusting in him. Because there's a lot of other stuff in this world that want our trust and wants to promise us trust but cannot really give it to us. Which leads me to the story of Herod, Herodias, and John. Let's explore this a little bit together. Um, so this Herod, it's worth introducing, is not Herod the Great. Okay, just right off the bat. This is his son, one of his many sons. Okay, Herod Antipas. Now, you got to ask yourself, why are they calling him king in this story? Because he's never really officially given this title of being a king. Uh, he's actually given a title by Rome, Tetrarch. Kind of a weird word, but what it means is the ruler of a fourth. <laughs> okay, he's the ruler of a quarter. Not that impressive, not, definitely not as impressive as being called king. And my, you know, my mind imagines that when he promises Salome one half of his kingdom, she actually doesn't even know what that is. She like goes to her mom, do you have a calculator here? Like what's one half of one fourth? Is this really even kind of embarrassing? I don't need an eighth. Okay. And so we'll take John, we'll take John the Baptist. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so he is this uh, ruler of Jerusalem, same guy that Jesus, you'll read this week in your uh, passion as you think about this weekend. This is who Jesus sees the night he's crucified. And, um, and he has gotten himself into a pretty weird situation. Um, I'm just thinking like I'm forgetting something. As we see Herod developing in this story, he has a clear relationship with John. But John is really only guilty of one thing, talking to him about sin. You can see the short story in verses 17 and 18. But the long story is actually a historical fact. Okay, What happened is Herod was married to someone, a Nabataean princess named Phacelus, and she was married to him for 30 years. 30 years in a very small country. Okay, this is not an unknown marriage. I mean, this is like Brad and, you know, Angelina or whatever. Like, these are people we know who are married. And, and marriage is a treasure in this time. Okay, this is not a small thing to see what happens. He goes to Rome on official Tetrarch business and stays with his half-brother Philip. In that time... He connects significantly with his brother's wife, Herodias. Happens to be both of their niece. Okay, so try, try and follow this. Uh, yeah, and so Herodias starts talking with him. And they're like, 
this is how the story goes. He starts to tell her, okay, you're just the wife of a statesman now, but what if you were the wife of a king? You know, Queen Herodias sounds like, like it's got a good ring to it and starts to talk about how they could plan to divorce their spouses and then marry one another and go live in Israel. Herod's wife finds out about this and she flees to her home country. This leads to a greater drama, which I'll save you from for now. Um, but... They come home and they live happily ever after. Okay, even in America where our view of marriage is not as sterling as it should be, this is still kind of raising some eyebrows. I can't even tell. Divorcing your spouse just to get married, I mean, this is, are they even thinking about Christmas? Exactly, like what, what how's this going to work when Philip comes home? And so... And so John calls him out on this. The problem is, as you see this story develop, Herod is kind of listening to John. He has a soft spot for it. So he hides John from Herodias' wrath, okay? She is kind of like an original cancel culture here. Like she just wants to make him disappear and delete his voice, right, from her algorithm, right, or whatever. She, she, she doesn't want him around. He hides him in prison, but then he makes an oath. All right, so this is a very important part of the story. He makes an oath with Salome, or Herodias' daughter, and he can't get out of this. He doesn't want to kill John, but now all of a sudden he's decided to become Mr. Oath, okay? Like, <laughs> you were married for 30 years, and now this is the oath that you want? Okay. And so think about oaths in the Bible for a moment. This is not a small peripheral topic in the Bible. You know, huge swaths of theology go into covenants and go into treaties and oaths that are made and promises that are made. This is a very important thing. Think back to Genesis when God makes a promise, a covenant with Abraham. How serious this is. Think about the Exodus and the children of Israel. In Exodus and in Deuteronomy, there's explicit command. Do not make an oath, a treaty, or a covenant with Canaanite cities. You're going to have to take on their gods. You're going to have to make some sort of agreement with them that this is okay. Because an oath at the end of the day is brokering of trust. I'm putting my trust in you. Probably don't have to read this to you, but I mean, it's a pretty memorable story of the angel of the Lord um, speaking to the children of Israel after they had just entered the promised land in Judges chapter 2. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give to your ancestors. I swore it to you. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. But you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land. You shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? I have also said I will not drive them out before you. They, they will become traps for you and their gods will become snares to you. God's not going to drive out the idols. He gives this job to his people. You were supposed to break down the altars. 
You're supposed to be a discerning community, figuring out where these are, not making treaties with them, not trusting in them. Be careful who we make oaths to, what we make oaths to, what we put our trust in, because these things can often become bondage to us. It is ironic that Herod is called king in this story because he has almost no power. And we have to ask ourselves a question, who's actually, is John the, the only person in prison in this story? Herod has made an oath with his social status. He has made a commitment, brokering trust somehow that if I just would look this way, and if I could look rich or look powerful or look this certain, then that'll mean something for me. It'll give me some sort of control or give me some sort of power in this world. He has made an oath and a commitment with his lust. He's following that around all over the world, divorcing and marrying. Like he is making a commitment here and it's got him. It is making him do things that he doesn't even want to do. Tell me that you don't know this. They'll keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay and they'll take more than you ever wanted to give. And Herod needs a guy like John Speak the truth to him. You call him out of it. What would have happened if you had listened? Thinking about John for, for a moment here. Um, John the Baptist is an amazing character in this story. It's actually a historical fact that he is in somehow relationship, in a relationship with Herod the Great. Or not Herod the Great, Herod Antipas. Um, it's somewhat debated, probably just because of how cool of a reference it is. But in, you know, a guy who was born five years after Jesus was resurrected became a historian, Josephus. And he actually writes about Jesus and John the Baptist in uh, section 18 of Antiquities. Let me read to you the, a quote that struck me. Some of the Jews thought that destruction of Herod's army, okay, this was with his ex-wife's dad's army, go figure, came from God. And that very justly as punishment of what he did against John, who was called the Baptist. <laughs> Their relationship is well known. For Herod slew him, and he was a good man, and commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, both as to righteousness towards one another and piety towards God, and so come to baptism. Rod likened John the Baptist in January of this year to Billy Graham. And I kind of like that analogy as you think about John the Baptist because he is a very well-known person. So well-known that like politicians know who he is. He is kind of in somehow able to talk to Herod when he wants to talk to him about his personal life, right? And so this is, this is a good analogy to, to, to make here. But just as an aside, as we think about John the Baptist, I'd like to just sort of think a little bit about our cultural moment and and just place a caution before you. So let the reader understand. I, uh, I, I, when I think about John the Baptist, I think about somebody who is kind of a fire and brimstone, like direct kind of preacher and teacher. And 
I don't know. I, it might just be me, but I feel like it, it, in our culture right now, it could be so easy to sort of look at the method that John uses and make it as synonymous with faithful Christian-like discourse in this world. Like, if, if we do this and we just, we, we get in the face of like somebody in this world and tell them the truth that they will <laughs> cut our heads off or whatever. They'll, they'll not receive it well and that will mean we were faithful, we're, we're faithful Christians. However, we have to be careful when we look at a method and champion it as something that is always going to be synonymous with faithful Christianity. We have to be discerning people. I mean, John talked to Herod. Jesus also met with Herod. He didn't say one word to him. It's not one or the other. It's both. When we take a method and we trust that over trusting the Messiah, we then start to become the Messiah ourselves. And we can easily start to make judgment decisions about people and judgment decisions about if this is right or wrong or what we think about this. And I only say this because we live in a world of clickbait. We live in a world that is just outraged about everything. And it just feels right in our world to just be vicious and just yell out into the world somewhere at whoever will listen. But doing this and just trusting that method doesn't necessarily mean we're being faithful. And it is missing out on one key thing that is present in John and Herod's relationship. And that is they actually have a relationship. During the early season of the pandemic in, when we had the stay-at-home order, I saw some of you start to twitch a little bit right there. Uh, okay. My friends and I were having a discussion about rule of life, you know, like what practices can we set up that will make sure that we're healthy for a season. And one of the things we talked about that I'll never forget is this. There's a rule. You're not allowed to get mad at somebody you don't know. Think about it. How much of, like, anger in this world would be reduced to, like, just to put the boundary out, I'm not allowed to get mad at somebody I don't know. For a season, for a time, that might be right, it might be wrong, I mean, something to think about, but what it did is it just reduced that possibility to, like, just people I know. And that's fine. I can talk to people I know. I can resolve the tension. I can ask questions and be curious and figure out, like, what's going on here? I, I want to be in good relationship with you. But I think that part of the despair in our world right now is we think we're, we're using a method that's faithful, but it just doesn't go anywhere. It's just fruitless. And now we feel like Herod's always going to win. John's always going to lose. I can't do anything about it. My voice doesn't really matter. And that is not true. And it's sad if we forfeit our ability to interact with our actual neighbor and the people who we actually know and trade that for saying things at people that we'll never know and never meet. It's just a discernment that I want to put before you. If it is leading to unhealth in your life, then turn it off and turn towards your actual neighbor and people that you know and start to work on, in a creative way, what would it look like to bring the kingdom into this person's life? What does make you angry? That's a great question to answer. But how can I use my anger in a way to create life-giving conversations in 
the context of people that I actually know. And work on them and love them and figure out ways to grow and bring them closer to Jesus as you have been just given responsibility to steward. One of the things I love the most about this chapter and this story of sending out the 12 and John the Baptist is that Jesus is relentlessly committed to working through other people. Don't listen to that voice that says that what you say doesn't matter. You just might need to be a little bit more discerning as to who you speak to. Do not cast your pearl before swine. Or here's another one from Jesus. You will have trouble in this world, John the Baptist. You will have trouble in this world, but don't think that you have to overcome the world. Don't think you even have to speak to the whole entire world. I have overcome the world. I can take care of that. And now I'm giving you the ability to go and bring that message to the people that are in your life that you actually know. John actually knows Herod. And so he feels like this is within the realm of possibility to go talk to him. And I love it because he loves Herod enough to give him this hard word. He, you know, we, we sometimes just sacrifice the opportunity to speak to people who are in our own lives a hard word of truth by saying hard words out to just nobody on the internet or whatever. It's a powerful thing to be able to sit down with somebody and say, I think that there's just some serious dysfunction going on here and I want to be a part of this with you. There's some sin that's going on here and it's causing a trail of devastation behind you. Let's talk about this. Let's figure this out. I think that John's uh, conversation here is beautiful. And so I want to encourage you to consider being John for somebody. That being said, I'd like to just pause for a moment on some practical stuff before we go. If in any way you're starting to develop in your mind and heart this conversation about maybe it's been a while since I've trusted God with anything, or at least the ratio is off, like I'm really trusting in a lot of these patterns in my country that say, trust me, and it's just really not relevant to God, uh, to, to Jesus and the kingdom. Start to audit what kind of covenant that you have made to various things. And ask yourself, have I made a promise or a commitment to looking a certain way? And where does that come from? What is that doing for me? Maybe you start to ask, have I made a commitment to something that is causing me to be so sexually dysfunctional like Herod is here? Or, or following my lust into places I would never go? And what is that really doing for me? Is there a covenant or an oath that you have made to a certain lifestyle or something that is just clearly causing you to justify, like Herod, turning a blind eye to massive injustice that's around you? And is it something that's worth stepping into and saying, you know what, I am going to to trust Jesus with this. And so maybe today, as you're thinking about this, it would be time for you to just stand up and say, I am going to renounce those commitments that I've made in Jesus' name. I'm breaking it off. I'm no longer going to commit myself to something that is taking from me, uh, taking from my soul and taking from me things that I'll never get back. And maybe a second thing that you can do in that regard is also to let John the Baptist out of prison. Could you just imagine... If Herod would have let him out and just said, just 
Tell me what I got to do to get out of this. The voices in the back of our minds start coming out. It's going to be embarrassing. <laughs> or yeah, it's going to make you look bad. Or it's going to hurt. Or it's not going to see, you know, it's just easier to leave it the way it is. And we need community as we grow and mature in our faith. We need people who are trusted around us that we are willing to say, hey, I feel like I'm stuck right now. Could you please speak into my life? And maybe there's somebody coming to mind right now who you have been not talking to on purpose. Let them out of jail. And say, as I'm preparing for Good Friday and Easter this week, I am really trying to clean house and I want to know, is there, is there some leaven in this batch? Speak to it. Help me, help me to get free. Take me by the hand and lead me out of this. You will be able to do that because John the Baptist is somebody who is going to continue to make himself less and make Christ more. We need to be a community of people who are willing to say to one another, though you have made covenants and commitments and sins, there is one who has made a better covenant. One who said, for all of your sin, this is my body broken for you. For all those bad covenants, here is my blood poured out as a new and better covenant for you. A covenant that is effective and able to set you free and bring you to a place uh, before God of purity. A place before God of restoration. All you have to do is trust in him. So just take a moment and pray. Heavenly Father, with your spirit, would you just inspire in our hearts the desire to live a life that reflects you in this world, whatever it might cost. And if for anybody that means turning our eyes away from things that seem so shiny and beautiful, but in the end are, really, are full of poison and death, and turning our eyes towards the one who died to be able to set us free from all that stuff, then even now, put our eyes on the cross. Jesus, our King, seated on your throne, wearing your crown, would you please just continue to teach us that you are trustworthy and that you have us. And there's no other system or government or voice in this world that is more trustworthy than you. Yes, you, even if it means we have to go to jail, even if it means that we do have to uh, experience persecution, that there is something that, this, that your resurrection power in our lives can bring that is not worth trading for anything else. We are just desperate for the seed that you planted in our lives to grow up and to bear fruit. And so if there's anybody here who needs to do a little weeding because the thorns have grown up and are choking out the word of your truth because of the anxieties of life, the deceitfulness of wealth, weed it out and help us to trust you in that. Any oaths or bond, bonds or anything that we've committed to this world uh, right now, we just break them in your name, Jesus. And we accept your freedom and renounce the stuff that has been holding, has been just keeping us ensnared. 
bring to us somebody who can walk alongside of us in this process as we continue to take steps of trust in you. Amen.